Star Trek Monthly Monday number 9. And don't show up here again unless you got the cash. Freak! I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. And transfer out! Freak! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, fork-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, and now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, 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 blah. No, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we're back. Hey, we're back. Hey! Star Trek Monthly Monday, number nine. Hey! And uh, this is the first part of a two-part episode. Whoa! Wow. Hey! Of, uh... Hey, now! <laughs> of, you know, before I go on, I'm just going to introduce myself. I'm Chris Honeywell, and that other voice is Scott Gardner. Hey, now! <laughs> he's just got, like, four... But he's basically, in Christopher Pike style, We've we've, uh... He's been in a terrible accident. Now, instead of giving him a yes or a no, he just basically has like one of those little stupid things that you carry around on your keychain. <laughs> he goes, "Hey now!" and it laughs. Hey now! And it laughs and it goes, "Hey!" And uh, that's about it. That's how he communicates now. So it's going to be an interesting show from this point on. And uh, actually, we're going to replace it after a little while, as soon as we can find one with those little keychains that go. Fuck you! Fuck you! You're an asshole! You're an asshole! <laughs> and, and maybe makes a couple fart I noises. I pretty much too. do that now. I mean, that's not much of a replacement. <laughs> I know. Really. <laughs> well, that's the one. That's the one that we would. You know, you would think by the time Christopher Pike, you know, was in that wheelchair, they would have better tech. Not if they could make the computer talk, you'd think they could make his wheelchair talk. But that's for later on in the show. This is this is going to be a special. This is a two-parter. Star Trek Monthly Monday of, uh, dun, of dun, the Menagerie, dun. which actually came up on our random computer and just in time for the movie, so it's like Pike time. So later, you know, our third third section of this uh, episode will have, uh, you know, our our intellectual, di- you know, dissection of part one of the Menagerie, and who knows, we might even Dang. have like special guests or something. <laughs> Intellectual. <laughs> hey now, <laughs> we'll have an intellectual discussion, George. <laughs> From now on, I'm Lenny, and you're George. Oh God! That means I get to shoot you at the in the in the back of the head at the end of the second episode, out of mercy, <laughs> before the crowd comes and lynches you. <laughs> I didn't mean to break its neck, George. Anyway, yes, it's 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 going to be a 
uh, a fun fun monthly Monday today, and we got um, we have some Star Trek comics from uh, Marvel in this first part. In the second part, we'll have some uh, some and and I don't you know I don't want to start any Marvel DC, but some far superior DC Star Trek comics in the oh, second part God. that Isn't we'll go that into true, a little more man. in depth. It's not, you know, it's not always, it's, I don't know if they're better because they were DC or because just whoever made those Marvel comics just was brain damaged or something. <laughs> I don't know, that, that would be the interesting part to explore sometime is what, what exactly makes the, the Marvel stuff, you know, so inferior to the DC, because I, I don't, I mean, right out of the gate, I'll tell you, I don't think it's the art, because I think the art on the Marvel stuff, yeah, so, nine times out of ten, was a hell of a lot better. Yeah, so it's, that leaves the writing. That's about yeah. All it's that's it's left. really it's the writing, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of pin that down a little bit more in in my analysis, because I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna actually lay some blame this time around. Yeah. So uh, give me a second to get to that. First, we have a uh, we have some listener feedback and. Uh, this was a uh, a little letter we got um, from our our newfound buddy uh, Mei Yi Chun. I uh, really like this one. It he just says two true freaks. He says the short parody of the Incredible Hulk TV series using Scott's rants in episode fifty three was excellent, and uh, Chris Chris is uh, to blame for that particular one. <laughs> He says, I especially like the bit about the uh, egg done by an uh, instigative co-host. One of the reasons that I found it so hilarious was that I could hear myself echoed uh, in the complaints about comic prices rising to three ninety nine. Uh, there you go. Oh, I'm telling Pretty you. Soon I'm there's going to be a million nerds in the street with pitchforks and burning, burning brooms turned upside down. They're going to be following me as I, as I march <laughs> on the castle. I'm telling you. He says, uh, there aren't too many regular-sized comics nowadays that I am willing to pay three ninety nine for. Star Trek Crew is one of the only ones where I feel that I get my money's worth at that price point. So I was glad to hear uh, how you guys were also enjo- uh, really enjoying it. Yes, I am. I just finished the third one, and it was fantastic. Mm. That, that book is great. Yeah, it man. is. It's really, really good. That's all, John Byrne. Mm-hmm. Good writing, good art. You can't yep. go wrong. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely uh, it's old school burn, and I'm loving it big time. He says, as a huge fan of the Cage and all things associated with Captain Pike, I think John Byrne is doing a great job. His art uh, is more enjoyable to me than it's been in years. I'll second that. He says, I enjoyed how lively and expressive it is while still being careful enough to note the differences in the look of the Starfleet uniforms and equipment featured in the two pilots before the series. The stories aren't really novel, but each installment does a nice job of developing number one's character more as well as uh, telling good self-contained stories in the full spirit of Star Trek. That's what I like about it, is it just feels like Star Trek. That about sums up exactly the way I feel about about this series. Me too. He says, in reference to episode 52, the first DC Star Trek comic title actually does address the peace treaty... uh, Tweety. Treaty? I can't talk today. Peace treaty. I thought I talked. Not peace tweety. Uh, Forced upon the Klingons in Federation by the Organians very early on in the series with a classic Kirk speech at the climax. 
Uh, personally, I always liked the main art team of Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. Villagran as the inker seemed to be a strong presence, much like Tom Palmer on Marvel's Star Wars. I, I'll kind of yeah. buy that, I think. Yeah, that right. He says, in keeping a similar look to the final product, uh, even when different pencilers filled in. That's a good point. That, that's true. It did have a uniform look throughout the, throughout the series, thanks to his inking. That's, a, that's an excellent observation. Well, he's an artist. He should notice uh, stuff yeah. like that. He's a damn good artist. Yeah. He says, I thought that they maintained a good balance of capturing enough of the details and likenesses of the Star Trek universe to make it distinctive while still using artistic license to create dynamic and exciting panels for the comic book medium. For example, I don't think that Sutton and Villagran's Kirk looks exactly like William Shatner, but from panel to panel and issue to issue, their Kirk remains consistent and fits the art style of the title. Yeah, I, I think so too. I really do. I, I think that's an excellent observation. It says, while it was harder to reconcile the existence of the DC Star Trek comic in between Star Trek 2 and 3 due to the small amount of time passing between the two movies, I still thought it was neat... Uh, that by the end of issue eight, it was mentioned that uh, David Marcus and Savick were going to the USS Grissom. I was very impressed with the clever writing, which managed to create the conditions necessary for issue 36 to neatly, if with a lot of suspension of disbelief, to tie into Star Trek Four after many adventures of Kirk and crew aboard the USS Excelsior. Yeah, that's something I, I'm curious to, you know, I, I've read this stuff, of course, but it was years ago, and I'm trying to remember how all that stuff fits together. So it'll be fun to rediscover that and point out what, what fits and what doesn't or, you know, speculate about how it might may or may not fit. I'm looking forward to that. He, thought, he says, I thought the review of Star Trek Ex Machina was really well done. Your description of how some of the crew uh, resented Kirk for how he treated Decker how Spock had to deal with the aftermath of meeting V'ger, and even how the author incorporated the new technical aspects of the Enterprise made me interested enough to go uh, look around for it. Well, excellent. That's what I was hoping for. says, your review of Dagger the Mind was full of great insights, like the often overlooked subtlety of some of William Shatner's acting to the funny observations about the, uh, the actor who played Dr. Adams. Shore leaves Ruth, uh, uh, Shore leaves Ruth as Kirk's Monica Lewinsky. Oh, that's right. I forgot we made that observation. And the slacker crew members on the bridge. I was wondering how many times I could hear neutralizer. Both in recorded form and your own fine renditions up front and in the background before I stopped laughing out loud. And I'm happy to say that I was cracking up all the way to the last utterance of Neural stool hardener. No! <laughs> that was very. Oh. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with conscious conscience of the king. Like you guys, I don't remember it with much fondness. Well, we liked it better than I thought we would. Yeah, I, I think both of us felt that way after watching it. That eh, that wasn't as bad as we remembered it to be. He says the actors probably love being able to bring some of their theater sensibilities to the episode. Although it doesn't seem to be a very memorable, uh, doesn't seem to be very memorable, except for the bit of background about Kirk's childhood. As Chris stated, if all else fails, it should provide some good fodder for your sharp comedic talents. Take it easy, may ye. We have sharp comedic talents. That's excellent. <laughs> I always thought of them as kind of blunt myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, we, yeah, more of more of a sledgehammer approach than you know the laser. <laughs> Mine's just like the rapid fire. Just keep going until something funny sticks, kind of thing. You yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I really appreciated that. Uh, that was excellent feedback, and uh, it's always great to hear from yeah, him. Yeah, I, I encourage all artists people to uh, write us and uh, feel free to drop some uh, Two True Freak comics if you ever feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's the next goal. You know, I mean, I, I always said that my, 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 my measure of success in podcasting was the first time that somebody sent us free well, shit. Well, We've that, gotten free shit a number of times. With, with, with our mutual friend uh, Kevin, we actually had a guy come in and draw a comic. He he basically took like four like pictures of our heads and then he made us like stand facing each other and then facing him and said like put the dumbest look you could possibly have on your face and took a few pictures and then transformed those into you know his comic strip and of course every every frame we had slack jawed <laughs> idiotic <laughs> looks on our faces it's great I'll, that uh, that's that's my next benchmark is now you know somebody that listens to us that's out there in 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 comic book illustration land i want to be in a comic book i've wanted i've wanted that all my life <laughs> the nitpicker I, oh that would be excellent but no i mean just and i'll be your i'll be your um i'll be your sidekick the spoiler <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't i don't care if it's just you know in, in some background thing or you know there's some some billboard that spider-man swings by and it says you know two true freaks or i mean I know that other podcasts out there, you know, they, they've had their likenesses or their or their shows or whatever, you know, their show logo or whatever put into comics. I, I want that, man. That's my next goal. So uh, I, I'm throwing that challenge out there to to anybody that can make that dream happen, man. I, I'm I'm ready for that. We'll I don't care. Get a prize. I mean, take take one of those <laughs> stupid looking pictures of me that's on our on our website where I'm one making of one of these faces you and mean every put, one of them. Oh, yeah, every one of them. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Any one of them. I cherry pick those pictures, you know. Oh, I know you do, you bastard. Ah, <laughs> uh, so anyway, man, I'm all, I'm all like fired up and just excited. To, I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. Good, you can take it out on some Marvel Comics Star Star Trek. Oh yeah, that's right. That'll, that'll, that'll simmer me right back you down. You can kick some right. of that stuff around. You can take that outside and kick it like it's the neighbor's dog. Oh, I'm telling you. Oh, I hate the neighbor's dog, too. <laughs> My neighbors have a dog named Birdman. Who names their dog Birdman? I mean, I'm not making that shit up, either. They got That's it from their adult, dog's it's name. It's from Adult Swim. Harvey I guess. Birdman, attorney at law, and he probably ate a bird or something, so they're like, let's, let's call him Harvey Birdman. Ha, 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 it's one of those little fucking yappy dogs that oh. never shuts up. And I just want to, oh, Jesus Christ, I just want to put it in a microwave, I'm telling you. Mm. Now we're going to get fucking letters. But yeah, that's mm. the truth of the matter letters. is if I can we get my get hands letters. on the goddamn thing. It's, Are there any PETA it's, members out there? <laughs> uh, Jesus. We're going to skin Birdman today. <laughs> that's okay. We eat everything we kill. I'm surprised one of these goddamn rednecks around here hasn't eaten the thing by now. They eat every other rodent that runs around the neighborhood. It's I'm telling you, it's scary. Chihuahuas were here's a <laughs> two true freaks interesting trivia fact. Chihuahua dogs were originally grown grown. You know they were raised by the Aztecs as food. 
They were hmm. raised for food. And genetically, a chihuahua is closer genetically to a rat than it is to an actual dog. So oh, that's what I, how I refer to them as rats. Yes. So, I mean, well, you're, you're, well, you notice you're you don't see that one. On correct. The, <laughs> you notice you don't see that one in the Taco Bell commercials anymore. I figured no. at some point he wound up in the mix, you know. Rats are acceptable with food now after Ratatouille. So now, now it's okay to have rats and food <laughs> together. <laughs> All right. Well, let me whip through these yeah. comics real quick because uh, I'm just ready to be past this Marvel stuff, to be perfectly honest with you. So this is uh, Marvel Comics misery. Star Trek. Put me out of my misery. It's Marvel Comics Star Trek 13 through 18. So number 13 has a cover by James Sherman, which looks a hell of a lot to me like uh, Kevin McGuire. I mean, it's uncanny, the resemblance in the artwork there. It's actually really nice, really nice cover. And this was my first time reading this issue. Somehow this one, although I owned it for years, had slipped by me You know, as far as actually sitting down and reading it. And I was really looking forward to it just based on the cover alone, which is uh, it has a Klingon. And he's holding Dr. McCoy's daughter hostage at gunpoint. So, you know, that right off the bat caught my interest. Well, this one's written by uh, Martin Pascal again with art by Joe Brozowski, um, Tom Palmer on the inks. And then there's a credit for D. Hands, which is kind of a Marvel code word that typically means that this book was running really, really late. And they just had a lot of other artists step in to kind of, you know, just throw it together and just get it done and out on the stands on time. So, you know, I'm curious who the other people, you know, who the, the D hands were that helped out on this. But uh, you, it's very noticeable that there's several different, um, at least several different inkers on this particular book. But I wasn't able, able to actually identify any of them. But uh, in this one, the Federation and the Klingons are both hoping to convince a race of sentient apes. And I'm not making that shit up. To join their respective, you know, groups or respective organizations. Dr. McCoy is unexpectedly reunited with his estranged daughter, Joanna, and is very distraught to learn that she is engaged to be married to a very aged Vulcan ambassador. And, you know, it's a great setup. You know, even the sentient ape thing, it's goofy. It's very Planet of the Apes, but it's kind of cool. But from there... You know, what was shaping up to be a really good story in the finest Star Trek tradition degenerates into just a convoluted, idiotic mess with McCoy acting completely out of character. He actually bitch slaps his daughter in this one part for no really good reason. It's got a dumb plot uh, about these smart apes that just comes out of left field. And the Klingons are portrayed as just total mustache-twirling, snidely whiplash types. I mean, they're just, you know, the typical comic book, you know, cardboard cutout villains. Not used to any greater effect than that. You know, this story really could have been great. It had a really good setup. I was really intrigued with the whole thing with Dr. McCoy's daughter. But instead, it's just stupid. You know, and the only redeeming quality again for the umpteenth issue is the really nice art, particularly in the in the space sequences with the Enterprise and the Klingon battle cruiser. Number fourteen uh, has a cover on it by Ed Hannigan, written again by uh, Martin Pascal, art by Luke McDonald and Gene Day. Now, take the plot 
of the Paradise Syndrome, which was a classic episode. This is the one where uh, they go into that monolith and Kirk gets zapped and he ends up becoming like a medicine man for this primitive people. Miramonte! Exactly. That's the one. All right. Now substitute the American Indian setting with an ancient Egypt setting. And you've got basically the same damn story. Cleopatra! (laughs) Only this one isn't done near as well. Um, It, of course, just has to have the obligatory Egypt, spacemen, earthmen connection, you know, which already has been done to death in this series by this point. You know, this this finding a phenomenon out in space that relates back to something in, in Earth or in Earth history. And you know what? We haven't seen the last of it yet either. So, you know, and it even has reanimated mummies. I mean, it really, this, this particular uh, issue leaves no cliche un, unused. It's, it's just really... Uh, so anyway, the sole redeeming quality you know, of, of this particular issue, and I think just for the sheer originality and, and really for the hilarity of it, is there's this nice sequence where for some completely unexplained reason, the Enterprise is shrinking, but the crew inside isn't. So they face the, you know, they face the prospect of a really nasty, squishy death as the ship is just stupid. (laughs) Well, there's a great shot of a ginormous Scotty on the bridge, like squatting over this little teeny tiny command chair that he's still trying to squeeze his ass into. So that's really, I, I like that. Otherwise though, this is a lame issue. Um, you know, the, the people, the quote-unquote people art is pretty decent, but the Enterprise is, I mean, just done very badly with the, the nacelles and the secondary hull constantly change size and position throughout the entire issue. It's it's pretty bad. Number 15, cover by Dave Cockrum and uh, Pascal, yet again, as the writer. Um, art this time by Gil Kane, legendary artist in comics. And, you know, I love Gil Kane. I really do. I've always been a fan of his stuff. However, this is not his best work. The characters, for the most part, you know, they look okay, but his enterprise is awful. I mean, it, uh, there's just no nice way to say it. It's just downright awful. The secondary hull, you know, that's that's the engineering section at the bottom. It's drawn tubular-shaped. And it's just slightly bigger than the nacelles on the side. So it's already just looks funny that way. It's like it's like a cigar with a saucer section and nacelles on it. It's really what it looks like. And then the saucer changes size throughout the whole thing. You know, it, it, it's thick and it's fat and then it gets really huge at the end of the story. It's just really wonky with the with the Enterprise. So anyway, the Enterprise is on a secret mission. Um, some starbase commander's bratty kid has run off with a shuttle, and you know he's probably ventured into uh, this territorial space uh, controlled by a species that's hostile to the Federation. So of course it's up to Kirk and crew to rescue the kid. Well, it turns out that the kid is wound up on the prison planet that belongs to these hostile people, and he possesses his mother's shape-changing ability. So he is shape change to take the place of a woman that's been condemned to death in this prison planet. 
And he's done this because he actually wants to die. He wants to die to atone for the death of his girlfriend that he feels responsible for. I mean, it's all right, I guess. It's not the worst story or whatever, but it's just, it's not great Star Trek by any stretch of the imagination. And the whole thing with, I mean, the kid has really gone through a whole lot of trouble to get himself killed. You know, there's a lot of easier ways to do it in the world of Star Trek than go to some enemy's camp, you know, and, and pretend to be a condemned prisoner. It's yeah. just, it, it's a really convoluted plot with a lot of, uh, you know, it's just fraught with plot holes, basically. Um but I have to say, you know, pulling this one out and looking at it again, I actually have a slight, a very slight sentimental fondness for this issue only because when I pulled it out and I saw the cover, I distinctly remember stopping off at that little store, that, that little like like convenience store that was on, what was it, Factory Street in Watertown? I know exactly the place here. That's you know what I'm had, talking about? That's where we had to get Saga of the Swamp thing nine times yes. out of ten. That's right. Well, we stopped there one time because a lot of times on the way back from town, my grandparents would swing in that place to get, I don't know, milk or something. And Randy, who never really bought a whole lot of comics that I I can recall. I mean, he read a lot of the ones that were handed down to him from his older brothers and stuff. But I don't really remember Randy ever getting into comics very much. But he bought this issue off the stand. And I can remember him seeing the cover and thinking the cover was so cool because it, it you know it was a very cool Cockrum cover with Kirk it looked like a like a devil or so he had horns or something like that because in the issue they disguise themselves as the native people and they have horns but on the cover you just see Kirk and he looks like a devil or something but I remember him actually like getting out to the car and starting to go through it and really not liking it very much because he didn't uh, either he didn't like the story or the art or whatever but Anyway, just the fact that I could actually remember him buying that issue when we were kids, I, I got the biggest kick out of that. So, you know, it's got a little bit of that sentimental twinge to it just for that fact. But beyond that, again, not a not a not a great issue. Sixteen's got a cover by uh Luke McDonald and Al Milgram. Uh Pascal again on the writing. Poor Luke McDonald. You know, he gives his best on the art with this one, but this issue just sucks i mean i'm not even going to be nice about it this issue just completely fucking sucks the series hits rock bottom with this piece of shit story all right get this the enterprise arrives to investigate what's become of one of their outposts and they find that the colonists who are missing they've all been mutated (laughs) into trolls nice it's sort of anticipating the invention of the internet. <laughs> All right. Well, the natives of the planet, and I'm serious as a heart attack about this, they're magic gnomes oh, who, for... I mean, complete with the little hat. They look like the underwear gnomes from, oh. from South Park. Oh, for you know, the love of Yeah, P-Cash. that's what I said. That's what I said. <laughs> You know, at first they they present themselves as nice magical gnomes and they seem to be very sure. helpful. But eventually, you know, by the end of the story, they're re- revealed to be the big bad guys. And, you know, and of course it gets revealed that they're related to Earth gnomes. And apparently, you know, Earth gnomes were really real after all. And it's a big revelation. All I just I'm going to go right out 
on record. Say it's fucking stupid. They're uh, magic gnomes. I, I mean, all right. If I were Martin Pascal, I'd be too embarrassed to show my goddamn face in public hey, after publishing hey, this. Hey, what? There's never been like it's not like big, Bigfoot. There's there aren't gnome hunters out there. Yes, there was a time period in the 70s where there was a best-selling art book where somebody made up their magical world of gnomes and drew it like a field guide to the the gnomes. But everybody, even me when I was a little kid and read it, knew it was just a fun book. It's not like uh, uh, the gnomes, they were real. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's – you know, I know that there were – some lousy Star Trek episodes. You know, there's no denying it. There's some of them that just weren't really very good. And that there's been plenty of lousy Star Trek comics and even some really lousy books, you know, both before and since. But this is just fucking horrible. I mean, it was really, really, really stupid. Um, Oh, and this is also, this is the infamous, this was the issue I was trying to think of. This was the infamous nacelles lower than the engineering section issue. And as I got to looking at it, I think what the artist was going for is I think it was actually supposed to be some sort of perspective shot, but it doesn't work. I mean, it's it's almost like one of those magic eye things where if you look at it one way, the nacelles are right. But if it, when you flip that page, your eye immediately sees that the nacelles appear to be underneath the engineering section. So it just looks really bad you know but regardless of that the the all-around issue is just bad and uh there are absolutely no redeeming qualities in this in this particular issue not on the art or definitely not the story it, it's this is just a pathetic pathetic issue and i'm amazed it ever got past whoever the hell the editor and especially the editor-in-chief at marvel was at the time because it's bad um number 17 though Nice, nice cover by Walt Simonson that, you know, I realized shortly before we sat down to do this episode, as I was looking at this, every time I would look at this cover, I think it just seemed reminiscent of something. And it finally hit me what it is. He actually cheated a little bit on this cover. The Enterprise on the cover of this of this issue is totally lifted from the uh, the promo poster that was out. Remember the, the Star Trek ad that was all over the comics right around the time that Star Trek, the motion picture was fixing to come out. Yep. And it was, you know, the, the enterprise is kind of canted to one side a little bit. Right. And it's got the, the, the deflector dish still looks like an actual dish. They yes. hadn't yet given the glowy thing, you know? Right. And then along the bottom, it had like little pictures of like Kirk and everybody that was going to be in the movie. It's that image only flip flopped. So the Enterprise is like canted the other direction. So he, but just, it's the he same. just traced it, flipped it, and traced it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's even got the little, you know, the real metal deflector dish and all that, you know, before they, they put the glow, you know, the glowy one in there and all that. So, you know, it's still beautiful. It's still a, a gorgeous cover, but I just think it's funny that, you know, he basically just swiped that image and put it on there because that's a big deal in comics today is all the uh, – photo referencing and all the swiping and stuff like that you know people piss and moan well that's that's hardly a new thing in comics it's been going on for a while um all right so anyway where are we here i'm sorry i got lost in my notes you were (sighs) you were griping is what you were doing i'm lost my plate all right here we go 
All right. So anyway, you know, I couldn't remember what this story was about. So when I cracked the cover and thumbed through it just a little bit before I actually started rereading it, you know, for the first time in like umpteen years, because it's been a long time since I looked at any of these issues. You know, when I saw the setting of the story, I thought to myself, oh, Jesus Christ, not another one of these Renaissance era primitive people story. You know, I really honestly hate those Star Trek stories. It just seems like they've they've been done to death, you know, with the with the whole thing, you know, Kirk and crew or Picard and crew or whoever beam down to the planet. And these people are living like in Shakespeare times. You know, it's just been done to death. But anyway, you know, I was really wrong about this. It's it's actually a really good story. You know, I was I was shocked because the only one I remembered out of this series being really good was actually the last issue. But anyway, you know, it probably the the biggest reason why this was actually a good issue for a change or why it seemed like such a shock is that Martin Pascoe has absolutely nothing to do with this issue. He was off the book at this point. And my mind likes to think that maybe he was actually fired because of the shit from the last issue, but that's just me speculating. Anyway, this one's written by Mike W. Barr. Uh, really, really gorgeous art by Ed Hannigan and Tom Palmer. And, you know, it concerns a, a story that, you know, I swear that they would use this same idea later on. And like, I think it was Next Generation or something where uh, Kirk and crew, they come in investigating um, – whatever potential environmental damage might have been caused by a Federation unmanned probe that crashed on this planet. You know, and this planet's got a pre-industrialized humanoid society, right? You know, it's basically they, they're all walking around looking like, you know, Shakespeare times. So Kirk and crew, they go down to the planet um, to scope out the situation. They end up getting involved in a bunch of hijinks with basically that planet's equivalent of Galileo. And, you know, there's a whole big thing about, you know, a, a very Inquisition-esque government and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, despite my predis predisposition to hate these kind of stories, I actually liked this one a lot. It was pretty cool. It was a little preachy. And I could even see, you know, uh, where you could you could kind of take some parts of it as maybe the, the author was taking some pot shots at religion or at least, at, you know, like really – uh, overzealous religious types, but it was still pretty good. And it was up to this point. I think this was the most Trek like story that, that we'd gotten, you know, the one that felt the most, you know, like an original episode anyway. And uh, so anyway, I, I liked it. I would actually recommend this one pretty highly. You know, if you, uh, if you want to check out actually a good issue of this series for a change, and that brings us to the very last issue, which which was billed as a special last issue collector's item, cover by uh, Brazowski again with inks by Terry Austin. This issue is great, and I was really pleasantly surprised to find out that it held up to my memory because I remembered it being really good without specifically remembering what the story was about. And rereading it again, I think it still holds up. I think it was a lot of fun. It's uh. You know, not only is the uh, the art by Brozowski and uh, the inker inside is Sal Trapani, you know, not only is that awesome, but the story is just totally and completely, truly Star Trek-like. It really felt like a like an episode of Star Trek. So, you know, it's everything that the, the series should have been and utterly failed to be up to this point, with the possible exception of the issue before this. But, you know, sadly, this is also the very last issue, so it was just too little, you know, way too late by this point. 
So anyway, the writer on this is J.M. DeMatteis, who, you know, I really like his writing anyway. He's just a great uh, comic book writer, and, you know, he would go on to, you know, bigger and better things beyond this. This story involves Kirk and Spock, and they're taken aboard this just massive world ship, which is, uh, you know, in the story it says it's 20.6 times the size of Earth. And it's funny because it looks like it's just made up of a bunch of, like, you know, old household appliances like stoves and refrigerators and stuff. It's pretty cool looking. Um, so they get beamed over this ship and they meet the sustainer who is this awesome robot. And he looks an awful lot like uh, John Burns' Raj 2000, if you've ever seen what, what that character looked like back in his uh, Charlton days. And the sustainer tells Kirk and Spock that, you know, he means them no harm and that he'll release them shortly just as soon as one of them dies. And, you know, they're, of course, shocked and appalled by all this. And then the scene changes to a pirate ship battle. And Kirk is now the captain of the seafaring version of the Enterprise, which looks pretty much just like the one that we see in uh, Star Trek Generations years and years later. But anyway, he's the head of that ship. And Spock is like the lead buccaneer. He's like the lead pirate. And, uh, you know, pretty quickly they, they come to realize that this sequence has been pulled out of Kirk's mind and is being reenacted. And, uh, you know, there's, I guess they're supposed to fight each other or something, but instead they actually team up and they start to try to battle their way out of this situation together. Um, but at this point, Kirk sees a mast, you know, a ship's mast that has uh, been broken by, a, by cannonball fire and it cracks off and it starts to fall towards Spock. So he leaps and he pushes Spock out of the way to safety but then he's struck and killed. So, you know, a grief-stricken Spock, you know, we see him, he carries Kirk out of this simulation and he demands, you know, the sustainer tell him why. You know, why did, why did you kill my friend, basically? And the sustainer says that, you know, he can't tell Spock why, but, you know, everything's cool. He can bring Kirk back. So there's a really nice sequence, you know, very nicely drawn of what, kind of looks to me like it's supposed to be Kirk's soul, like reuniting and reawakening, you know, from his body. And, and Kirk comes around and he asks Spock, you know, what, what happened to me? You know, what, what went on? You know, how did we wind up here? And Spock tells him that he died. So, you know, at this point they kind of put their heads together. They decide they're going to make a break for it. Um, and as they try to cross, there's this huge chasm inside the world ship, kind of like the one in the Death Star in Star Wars. And there's a, you know all these wires and struts and things bridging the gap. So they get on one of the struts and they start, a, start to try to walk across. So they get about halfway across and it collapses. And Spock has just enough time to uh, grab Kirk and he throws him to safety, but then he falls to his death. So then, you know, there's a great... Uh, sequence of Kirk mourning Spock, which actually looks a lot like, you know, what we would see a couple of years later in Star Trek too, you know, when Kirk mourned Spock, you know, when Spock died in that movie, um, you know, but the sustainer, he pulls his little resurrection act again and he brings Spock back. So Spock is revived. Um, and eventually, you know, it's revealed why the sustainer is doing all of this, but I don't, I don't want to spoil it. I thought that this was a really good story. I thought the reveal was fairly interesting. And uh, it was very Star Trek-ish. You know, it really felt true to what it was supposed to be. So I'd say, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan and, you know, 
you really need to read at least this one issue of this series. It was the one issue that, that justified the series existence. Um, it's really the only issue of the series worth getting, except maybe for the movie adaption, because, you know, the art in that is, is really very good. And there's a lot of alternate scenes in there that are pretty cool, but this is the only one of the whole series that I would say qualifies as great. I mean, it was really a great issue. Um, I think it still holds up and I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's an intelligent story, very nice art. And it, you know, it's just too bad that it took them to the very last issue of the series to produce it. If more of them had been like this, you know, who knows? They might have had some real success with this series like they were having with, uh, say, like their Star Wars book of the time or like, uh, you know, DC, you know, they found some real life in Star Trek just a, a short while later after this. And they uh, they did, you know, they did a whole hell of a lot better and had a had a longer run. They had two series out of Star Trek. So. You know, a, a really nice book at the very end anyway. So that's it for uh, Marvel Star Trek. Now, do you remember this issue, Chris? No, I, don't, I, I remember when it came out, but I never owned it. Oh, okay. I thought I you never, had read this I, one. I've never read any of these, the, the Marvel ones. Ah. Uh, well, as you can hear, you didn't miss <laughs> yeah, much. I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> not, not going to be uh, scouring eBay for them any time in the near future. Although, if I find them for a penny and free shipping, send them there my way. There you go. But uh, we'll be back, actually, with some good Star Trek comics. There you go. Or at least better. Hello. We all love the bombastic antics of William Shatner. But sometimes, don't you yearn for something more relaxing? Well, sit down, relax, and do some Tai Chi, and drink some chai tea. It's time for a poem by Leonard Nimoy. I am convinced that if all mankind could only gather together in one circle, arms on each other's shoulders, and dance, laugh and cry, together, then much of the tension and burden of life would fall away in the knowledge that we are all children, needing and wanting each other's comfort and understanding. We are all children, searching for love. Relaxing, no? And now, back to the show. Alright, we're back, and uh, it's on to some DC Star Trek. Woohoo! Um, so this, this episode, episode issue is called Foes and Friends. It's number three. Federation and Klingons, Foes and Friends. By Mike W. Barr, Tom Sutton, and Ricardo Villagran. And it has an awesome cover of the Enterprise flying in. It looks just in time to see a bunch of Klingon ships blowing up, you know, a star base or some sort of Federation facility is getting completely destroyed. And it actually looks like it's over Earth. It actually looks like um, the continents of Earth underneath. But Yeah. So, it's beautiful. Uh, so it starts out as it ends with, you know, Kallus the Fourth declaring war on the Federation, and 
Kirk just sort of in awe that they've just, you know, that they're sort of springing to this to declare war. And um, so we cut back to, to um, is it Kalis or Kalis? Kalis. Kalis, yeah. Uh, you know, he, go, he, he dismisses all his minions and goes to ponder, and there's this sort of blocky rock cr- thing surrounding him obviously sort of possessing him or inside his brain, you know, um, telling him, you know, you've always wanted to destroy the Federation and now you get to, and he doesn't really want to go to war. You could tell this thing is, is forcing the war on him or controlling his actions. And, uh, meanwhile, Kirk is like, you know, get, get Turner on the line at Starfleet. We got to tell him what's going on. So he gets in there and, and talks to the admiral, and you know he says, "Yeah, I'm afraid so. We got the same transmission from the Klingons. You know they wanna wanna declare war." And uh, so the weird thing is, is Kirk is like, "All right, well we're ready to go. We're, we're gonna head to Organia." And he says, uh, "No, no, you know um, we're sending you to guard the Romulan neutral zone." And uh, Kirk starts to question him on him, and of course he says, you know, this is war, you're a soldier, do what you're told, and Kirk, of course, obeys. But, you know, he's he's thinking about it and, and gelling on it, and you can tell he knows something's up, so, you know, he so he has him check the, the message to make sure that it was a real Starfleet message, and it was, so he says, all right, you know, I guess we got to do what the Admiral says. And uh, back at, at the Federation, you see that... Uh, Admiral Turner is in the same thrall of the, this rock sort of aura around him. Meanwhile, in the botanical gardens of the Enterprise, Konam and uh, Lieutenant Bryce are taking a nice little, uh, a little romantic uh, walk through there, while a bunch of, um, you know, her fellow fellow um, crew members, um, including the other one who's. Uh, family was on the ship that was destroyed by Klingon are watching him. They're getting fired up. They're starting to get racially fired up, you know, that she's colluding with a Klingon. Meanwhile, Kirk and uh, McCoy are tipping a drink and, you know, uh, Kirk's pondering, bouncing some ideas off McCoy because he really, you know, his exchange with Turner, you know, he knows Turner and that doesn't seem like Turner. As a matter of fact, Kirk was headed to Organia because he was sort of anticipating what what Turner would want him to do. And meanwhile, they're interrupted by a Starfleet command transmission, which is basically like worded and pictured like an old um, World War II propaganda movie with, you know, the bloody Klingons have destroyed a uh, Starfleet medical outpost, you know, with no regard for women and children. And then it shows Starfleet striking back by uh, destroying a Klingon outpost, and they say, you know, they people say that this was a peaceful outpost, that, you know, but we know better than that. And so everybody on the ship's watching this and getting all fired up, and yeah, let's get the Klingons and kill them. And Kirk immediately, you know, s- says, this is, you know, this is not right. And, and McCoy's like, what is Starfleet's? doing propaganda now so um he he has her a check in he's like is this really a starfleet transmission she says yeah and he says well get it off my screen and and uh tell sulu you know screw this something's wrong take us to organia and you know tell scotty you know let's let's get there as fast as possible so 
Off to Organia, so Kirk's defying orders once again. Meanwhile, the crew is so fired off about uh, Konam and Bryce that they're chasing him through the hallways and winging <laughs> pieces of metal at him. You know, and so I love they, it. They basically they basically get sort of cornered at the turbo lift, but are saved by security who come out and and sort of protect them. They just start stunning the crew with their phasers. Meanwhile, we get to Organia. And the plan, and it's it's a whole Star Wars moment where the planet it's gone. You know, it's, there's just a, a black, blank spot in space where the planet used to be, and um, you know they start scanning it. They don't know what it is. It's just some sort of void, or you know, Kirk speculates maybe it's a black hole, and and uh, Savick says that it's black hole would, you know, give us some measurable readings at the very least, and. Um, you know they pick up life forms and uh and then they can see you know over towards near the um the the um black hole or black disc that there's two klingon ships sort of hanging out so kirk immediately jams their communication and engages them in battle and in the course of the battle you know they uh cripple one of the klingon ships and it flies into the black field and just sort of disintegrates and is absorbed by it. And earlier they'd fired a couple photon torpedoes at one of the ship and missed and hit the black field and it absorbed that too. So they uh, they keep engaging with the other Klingon ship and they eventually cripple that one too and it's fallen towards the shield and Kirk orders all the <clears throat> Kirk orders all the survivors from the Klingon ship beamed aboard and taken prisoner. So. Uh, they beam him aboard, and um, it's uh, Commander Kor. So Kirk and Kor immediately, you know, they t- take off all Kor's men, and Kirk and Kor just like, Kirk's like, come on, walk with me, and takes him and says, look, you know, something's up. Somebody's manipulating both our sides. You know it. I know it. You know, innocent people are getting killed on both of our sides, and we both know that war is not going to be beneficial to either of us, so we got to team up and uh get to the bottom of this and core starting to sort of go along with it the 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 klingons in these episode issues are pretty pliable compared to a lot of other klingons we've seen in star trek but uh he's starting to go go along with it and they're figuring you know this black void it's probably the key to this whole thing when all of a sudden bloom a familiar big rocky spider eyed blocky creature shows up and uh tells Kirk to shut his mouth this little drama will play its course for to interfere with our quest for knowledge will surely be your doom and that's where it ends with with our familiar I wanted to say a familiar face but (laughs) (laughs) it's just sort of a rock with many little blue dots on it but um um, what'd you think of this one I thought it was pretty good. It had it had a lot of that uh uh a little bit of wheel spinning in it, you know, a little bit of yeah. uh this and that going on. But, you know, it's 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 got its Star Trek elements. It's it's definitely, you know, like I said, it, it's as soon as you see you can sort of see what's going to happen in the next issue <laughs> with this one because once you see this creature, you know, you know 
what TV episodes it's it's from uh, and it's really funny because it was the one we were just searching for the name for in our last yeah. Star Trek monthly <laughs> Monday. It's a Savage Curtain with Spock. Help me, Spock. Help me, Spock. And these creatures, uh, these creatures, obviously, like get off on, you know, having other creatures play out things so they can see how it works. Fight for our amusement. Exactly. Or well, you know, they don't even say it. they don't even admit it's their amusement. They're just basically sort of fight for our fight for our education. <laughs> <laughs> we want to know how you guys fight, so have at it. So we can sort of see where the, this is, and and um, and another one we were just talking about off off mic, or I don't know if it was last night or when we were just talking the other day, but was it Day of the Dove? Yes, you know where yeah. they have to team up with the Klingons, where they have yeah. where, where where the Federation has to get along with the Klingons. So there's a little bit of so. It's doing that Star Trek the motion picture formula of throwing a few TV shows, plot ideas and plot actual plot elements in this case now, for for this one. So right. it's it's a good build up, but we can some sort of see where it's going. We can sort of at least see what the setup's going to be for the next one. That like, well, we'll 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 get to that in just a minute actually, but. Or no, yeah. we'll get to that next month actually. <laughs> yeah, next next month. <laughs> I I liked this issue a lot. Um, I, but yeah, I, I feel yeah. I, I, it's I don't know so much wheel spinning, but it, that the the stories it's it's a little spread out. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, I enjoyed it a lot. But one of the things, well, there's actually a couple little things, kind of nitpicky, I guess. But a couple things kind of bug me. For one. The scene with uh, with Nancy and uh, and Conom, the the pussified Klingon, mm-hmm. was kind of interesting and all, but then as it you pans can almost out, you hear from the that, romantic Star Trek music yeah. in the background too. <laughs> it uh, you know, then it pans out from them, and we actually see that there's like a whole fucking group of people gathered around. Watching, watching them. them on the monitor as they're hanging out like, together, yeah, like hanging out in a lounge somewhere, you know. That's yeah. kind of creepy. I mean, somebody, you know, somebody wouldn't report that, or somebody wouldn't say, "Hey, you know, maybe we should not be spying on fellow crew members." Or, you know, it just seems right. odd. Well, that's what that, all... that's what that's one of my main complaints, story-wise, with this is the Enterprise crew really gets turned into a mob very quickly, especially right. since we're living yeah. in the Federation times with a more enlightened and open-minded people, where you know. I mean, interracial romance at, at this point, even with Klingons, at least would be in their scope of being open-minded. You know, okay, we've got a Klingon that saved us, and this 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 chick's hugging up on him, and and okay, granted, they sort of set it up that you know a few of these people were in a Klingon attack with Bryce, you know, with the ship, and their families were killed, families and friends were killed and stuff, but really. Man, that you know, b- between that and a, and a simple propaganda film that was really a relic of hundreds and hundreds centuries ago, right? One, one little propaganda film, and and I, she's not even making out with this Klingon. She's just giving him little hints that she likes him at this point, and they're just looking at flowers together. And these people are ready to kill him. They're winging, literally. You know, pieces of machinery at them as they run down the hallway. Right, and it's uh, it, it it would make sense if maybe these creatures, you know, they're, it's obviously that they're uh, you know 
taking control of the heads of both the Klingons and the but but they're not take it's not like the creature in Day of the Dove where it just turn makes everybody a little baddie, you know. They're not under right. the influence of something that that cuts down their inhibitions about being evil or whatever. So I could buy it if they had set it up that way. But right. yeah, you're right. They don't seem to be under the influence of anything other than their no. own right. their own feelings. Right. And 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 those are topics that you that are very Star Trek y are, you know, social topics. I mean that's just a classic of science fiction is is put social topics of the day into a into a future reference point, but it's just it's it's too you know it would have had to have been you have to do it a little more subtly in here because the 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 Star Trek is almost there to show the contrast of what today's society's like you know you see you see that you know really Uhura's like race is never addressed in the TV show it right. was addressed by people writing about the TV show that Kirk was kissing Uhura and it was a big deal and stuff but in the show no but there's no real like you know there's the only time race ever becomes an issue is other races or you know extreme alien races and usually the story's about us getting over that like the Horda you know where right. it's like we don't understand and once we understanding is met there's a common ground and all that but this one yeah the, the the characters just revert to sort of 20th century mob even i don't think you could get a mob whipped up that easily with you know in this day and age maybe maybe down maybe down south if you push the right buttons in the right place but for the most part <laughs> not a not a crew of trained milit you know the the equivalent of trained military like the the crew of a navy boat or something, you probably couldn't even get them whipped up in this day and age like that. So, yeah, but it's a comic book, <laughs> so it's it's a pretty, not that that's an excuse, but it's it's not there for you know it's not there to be Dostoevsky. So it's <laughs> it's a pretty good it's it's a pretty good setup, you know. It's it's definitely. Sounds like it's a nice relief over, um, and you get to you get to see a classic Star Trek character sort of illustrated. You know, he's a classic Star Trek illustrator, but uh, a character, but he's illustrated a little bit. He's got a little Ben Grimm going on on him. You know. Oh yeah. yeah that was that was my last nitpick, and, and it carries over into the next issue too. Is the uh, the creature has actual like claws. Yeah, like sloth but, but in, claws. Yeah, but in the episode, they were more like like clipper things, you know? Because yeah. I remember, d- didn't he like clip them together to signal for somebody to do something I at one you, point I or something like that? Right. Yeah, yeah. So that bugged me just a tiny bit. That's extremely nitpicky, but it, it it bugged me just a tiny bit. But yeah, overall, I I you know I, I dig this pretty well. And I remember as a kid reading this the first time and. You know, when that guy popped up at the end of the story, I was like, oh, that's cool. Because I remembered, you know, right away I knew who he was, you know. So I thought that was – now, is yeah, this your first time reading this? Yes, it is. So what, what did you think of when he when that guy popped up? I mean, you must have recognized him right at the end of the story too, right? I was a little suspicious because the rocky creature, the rocky aura that was around everybody sort of looked like him. You know, it was blocky and it had those dot the, – the spider eye sort of right. effect to it. And I was thinking, you know, it's sort of like that creature from that one. Because we'd just been talking about that episode 
last right. month. And um, I was a little surprised. I was a little surprised and, as always, a little bit leery because, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, you know, it's getting recycled. It's it's is it, Isn't Star Trek Infinite Diversity? <laughs> isn't that one of the um, tenets of, of Star Trek? So, you know. Right. You know, so, you know, there's a million billion aliens out there. Let's get let's get some new aliens. Although, you know, they're they're one of the Star Star Trek has a lot of semi omnipotent <laughs> races in it. So those semi omnipotent races like this guy should may in the queue and stuff like that maybe might show up a little more because they might be a little more medley, you know, not like a medley of tunes, but medley is in meddling kids. <laughs> so, I guess it, 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 it makes sense. Well, cool. We'll see. Uh, we'll get more of this uh, this storyline in the next, next episode. Next and, episode. Uh, coming up, we're going to have... Oh, it's going to be fun. It's part one of The Menagerie. stereotypes about us so-called nerds. Well, two true freaks are here to prove all that trash talk wrong. Come on into the captain's quarters, baby. Does the smell of mylar turn you on? What's that? Yeah, baby. All 97 long boxes are full to capacity. Oh, do you feel a little faint? Let me pull out my tricorder and take some readings. But first, let me draw these original Star Trek The Motion Picture curtains. Hey folks, it's Maury Clawhammer here, and I personally guarantee that Two True Freaks is always hot, and it's always topless, okay? And it's available 24 hours a day on the internets. Get your freaks on! TwoTrueFreaks.Libson.com Alright, we're back to Two True Freaks. It's Star Trek Monthly Monday, number 9. This is our third part of our show, and uh, through the magic of Skype, we've got two guests, along with Scott Gardner and myself, Chris Honeywell. We've got uh, Lenny Cooper, who you uh, may remember from our uh, episode, our our memorial of Ricardo Montalban. And uh, now, I should have maybe gone over this before we we went on, but... um, We've got a first-time guest on our show tonight. We got uh, Mike. Is, how, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Poteet? Poteet, that's right. Poteet. Yep. We've got Mike Poteet, best known as Biblio Mike, if you're on our forums. And, established uh, Star Trek author. You got to throw that. That's right. Established Star Trek <laughs> author. And One time. One and time. Yes. Next. He month, brings gravitas to the show. That's <laughs> true. And next month, you'll actually get to hear our uh, review. Of uh, we're gonna have a review of his his short story <laughs> from his book, where Scott and I both give our too. opinions. So uh, we so did make it. this the last time you'll hear Biblio. Well, that's why we're doing it on the second show. We wanted to. We that's didn't right. want to do it on the first show and alienate him or something, you know. <laughs> so, but he, you, he you, brings gravitas and I bring flatulence. So this yeah. is good. <laughs> 
And so, uh, so tonight we're 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 going to be uh, discussing the uh, the first part of the the Ash. episode, the menagerie, the menagerie, and uh, uh, usually we do a little little synopsis of it, but we're going to do an even littler synopsis of it. So uh, I guess I'll do it because I'm talking now. So uh, the the Enterprise is rerouted to a starbase because um, they've, you know, set, Spock has said he's gotten a message from the starbase that they should proceed directly there. So they go there, and the starbase hasn't heard anything about it. And uh, Kirk, uh, suppose, it seems like one of Kirk's old buddies, Commander Mendez, is like, I don't know what's going on. So uh, it turns out, you know, the, the message was supposedly from uh, Commander Christopher Pike, who... Uh, we find out could not have made the message because he's in his little beeper wheelchair, which everybody's so familiar with, and uh, and is basically well, he's not a vegetable because his brain works, but that's about all that works. And uh, so, um, you know, meanwhile, while they're trying to figure out what's going on, Spock does a little bit of trickery and uh, grabs Pike, uh, tricks McCoy into getting on the Enterprise, and takes off for uh, Talos Four, um, a planet that. Um, turns out Christopher Pike had been to earlier on the Enterprise when uh, Spock used to serve under him and has been banned by Starfleet. There's You you can't go there. There's a death penalty if you even go to Talos Four, And of course, that's where Spock is headed. So Kirk and Mendez chase after him in a, in a shuttlecraft from uh, the Starbase. And once they reach the point of no return and Spock realizes that if he doesn't pick up the, the um, shuttlecraft, that... Uh, you know, Kirk and Mendez are just going to die in space. He picks him up and surrenders himself for court-martial. So there's a court-martial, and in order for the court-martial to take place, you you need three officers. So they've got Kirk, Mendez, and uh, since they've got Pike there, they pull him in. And, uh, you know, just phrase your questions all in a yes or no, but Pike <laughs> is the third. In the So they, they, they begin the, the court-martial of, of Spock, and... Uh, Spock, in his defense, starts to show these old record tapes of the last time uh, that he and uh, Pike and the Enterprise went to Talos IV, which very quickly, you know, begin to look like that they go way beyond a, a uh, just a regular record tape from a from a starship, and it turns out that the uh, it's actually a transmission from Talos IV, and um, we sort of end it there. You know, we we see a little bit of the story of them going to Talos Four and finding survivors of a of a spaceship craft from 18 years earlier, and uh, Pike starts to put a, a little bit of Kirk moves on this on uh, Vina, this the beautiful daughter of one of the scientists, and uh, you know, in a big old switcheroony, you know, Pike standing next to Vina, all the all the rest of the settlers disappear. They were some sort of illusion, and and Pike's, you know grabbed and taken down an elevator into the into the uh, subterranean chambers below Talos Four, and uh, it's sort of left at that. It's sort of left with um, Spock on trial and and uh, this sort of this sort of mystery story and uh, courtroom drama happening. And uh, now we can have at it. First of all, Did just tell we, me anything important that I missed. <laughs> Is no, there anything it. important that I missed? I must have missed something. I think you hit the high points. Yeah. This this episode's better than I remembered it. I remember as a little kid, it was kind of disappointing to me because it reminded me 
of um you know clip shows that you would see uh-huh. sometimes you there and and for some reason when i was a kid the difference between the way that the cage was filmed and the way the new star trek was filmed really was jarring to me then and it's not at all now it all seems to fit together huh. rather well now but That's i remember it being very jarring when i was a kid i remember being very um, I could tell, you know, Spock's makeup and his demeanor were different. And now as an adult, maybe I think of character development more. And it's like, well, Spock was younger and had a little different haircut. And, uh, you know, number one seems a lot less harsh than she did when I was a kid. I thought she was very, like, masculine. And maybe I'm warming up to number one because I'm reading those comics by John uh-huh. Byrne about her. But uh, she seemed she seemed to be a lot less... Vulcan than yeah. I remember computer like, but I really liked it. I thought it was very the the surrounding story was actually very well written and actually took up more of the first episode than I remembered, and uh, so there was a little more writing involved than I thought. You know that I than I seem to remember, and it was good. Although you know nowadays it just seems a little ridiculous in the twenty third century that they can't come up with a better. Uh, Interface? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, my wife and I saw a show on Stephen Hawking not too long ago, and I was thinking, <laughs> you know, this is one instance where Trek has not accurately predicted the uh, the pace of future technology, because if we can have Stephen Hawking giving lectures in, you know, the early 21st century, surely they could do more for Chris Pike than a little flashing light. That's you know. Well, I kept thinking. I guess things really got set back during the world wars and eugenics wars and whatnot. Right. <laughs> I kept thinking at a minimum, have they forgotten Morse code? <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> from that way, you know. No, we know they haven't because they use it in Star Trek V. Scotty yeah. taps out that breakout message. In oh, that's Trek, right. So. There you go. So that's that, right. That knowledge survived. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just uh, I was just perusing the because. Uh, I meant, I meant to do it as homework before the show, and I, I was slack and forgot to do it. But I was just perusing the uh, nitpicker's guide for classic Trekkers about this episode. And most of them I'm not going to bother with because they are extremely nitpicky. But one that I can't believe I never caught before is, all right, it's cruel enough that the poor guy gets nothing but two blinking li- – or you know, <laughs> a, a, one light that blinks yes and no. But he's also put into a room – with doorknobs and hinges, so he can't <laughs> even <true>. get out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's why he's just sitting in there beeping no all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he doesn't even get the courtesy of one of the whoosh doors, you know. He's, he's, he's a trap. Oh, oh, that's, that's a good point. I even just noticed stare. this time around that there was a hinge door, and I all I thought was, oh, there's a hinge door in the 23rd century. <laughs> but yeah, that's a great point. Well, it's interesting, Chris, that you mentioned that initially, I get that you've changed your mind on it, but that your initial reaction was sort of to be put off by it as sort of a clip show. Uh, Because, of course, when it was originally aired, nobody had seen the – that's the difference between this and a true clip show. You know, nobody had seen, oh, yeah, we saw this one before, clip show. But also, that's the thing that has always made this my absolute favorite episode, and especially part one. Like you said, the great setup of it. It's like the ultimate retcon, <laughs> and 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 it gives the Star Trek universe. I, I was trying to think, why is this my favorite one? Because there's so many other 
classic episodes out there right. that other people remember more. But this, to me, you know, we've gone what fifteen or something episodes in the series by the time this one rolls around, and it immediately gives the Star Trek universe the sense of backstory and past history. And yes, oh my gosh, there was a, a previous a captain of the Enterprise, and and Spock yeah. was there, and who are all these other people who we don't know these people? You know, it was just. It, that universe explodes wide open with it this adds episode. To the realism, and yeah. By bringing in that first pilot the way Roddenberry did, uh, it really just becomes a much bigger playground overnight. So I, that's what I love about it. Yeah, that's that's true. And it also it also since it's set what was it thirteen years earlier? Yeah, thirteen um, years ago. It explains. It doesn't explain some things like why the warp drive sound effect was used for the laser, but. <laughs> you know, but you know the 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 big bulky lasers and the big old bulky yeah. um, communicators yeah. and stuff. You know, the jet with the giant screen door on them and yeah. uh, stuff like that. And the and the uniform and because it did. And I think maybe back when I saw it, it was close enough, closer to when it originally came out to where the the um, the stuff from the cage looked old. It looked a little corny, like they used uh-huh. to film shows years before star trek so but now as time has gone by the 60s and the 70s look sort of blend together to me the feel of it so sure. it, it it makes sense and even the the time yeah the the and but now watching it and of course everything like i watched the first part was one of the restored um, yes. enhanced editions and the second part i watched off cbs cbs's youtube site oh that's uh-huh. got to be weird but they're both um they're both have been you know perked up a little bit and and yeah. and uh so all the footage from from the cage and stuff looked a lot nicer than probably the 16 millimeter prints that, that were transferred onto crappy videotape that Scott and I used to watch on channel 11 <laughs> right, but uh right it, it just seemed a lot smoother now you know the transition between those two those two time periods and the two Scenes, and I also forgot that the Telosians were transmitting that. Not because one thing that really always annoys me is when the Enterprise is like, "Okay, we're gonna watch video of of what happened in you know this starbase and to see what what became of all these people." And then you watch this edited um, <laughs> yes. broadcast that has you know close-ups and stuff and <laughs> yes, cut angles yes, and things like yes. that. And you're like. Wow, they really. This computer's got a mind of its own. It's got a pretty That's good right. eye, you know. All the computers have a hey, uh, cinematography. Some difference between when the cage was made and when the menagerie was made. Is is it much at all? It couldn't be that much. It could it's only be a couple, much. three it's... years or Hello? something like that. Maybe two years at most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, uh, so... I think I think there's two, maybe a year and a half to two years between the first pilot and. Um, the Corbomite maneuver, which is really the first regular episode of of the series, even though that wasn't the one that that aired you know, premiered. Yeah. yeah, aired first. But yeah, I th- I'm, if I remember my history right, the Cage was filmed in like, well, maybe it's not two years. It was filmed in like sixty four or sixty five. Well, I'm so, looking yeah, at Menag- I guess maybe a year. Menagerie aired on November seventeenth, nineteen sixty six. If that helps. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the film. Did you, did you mean that? That well, yeah. It would it would be the filming date because the cage never aired until the the 80s. So I'm trying to think of. I used to know this, and I can't remember anymore. 
Do, I mean, do you know, Mike? Somebody, it's, uh, somebody uh, will pop up after the show airs and tell oh, us yeah. for sure. <laughs> I would have guessed 64. Um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking, Six, like, 64 or 65. So, yeah, a year to two years. I mean, so why would it look that much older? I mean, did they try to consciously make the cage? They could have had like, a... They could have probably had a totally different production crew, makeup crew. Everything was probably all, you know, a, a lot. Uh, the way you know the way it works is, you get um, all that you know. You you come up with a bunch of little story synopses for synopses for pilots, and you know they'll say, okay, I like this one, make it, and they'll give you a budget, and you just sort of hire up people to do it, and uh, you know it, those people may not necessarily end up be doing it. When, because um, usually when you're doing a pilot, you might be going for a little on the cheaper, you know. So you might have a whole, you know, uh, are lower you... tier of people working for it on the on the sound stage, you know. When when you do that, uh, are you saying that you guys think that that the the cage looks a lot older than than the the later series? Yeah, the kind technology of does. does. I, well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to blow your the... mind because I, I I think. I got. I have a theory why aspects of it do, but other than like that viewer that's on the uh, the navigation console, you know, the one with the with the gooseneck, you know, it looks like a gooseneck lamp. Uh-huh. Other than that, and the hairstyles and uniforms, hairstyles and uniforms definitely. I add like to that. It. I like Pike's Enterprise actually the bridge and everything a lot better than Kirk's later one because yeah. I think it does yeah. look more <laughs> futuristic. It, it reminds yeah. me a lot. Of the very brief shot that we see of the stark-looking Excelsior bridge from Star mm. Trek Three, and I'm going to get back to Star Trek Three later because I, I find a lot of parallels between this first uh-huh. episode of the Menagerie and Star Trek Three, huh. and it's a lot of the reason why I like this episode so much. I'll, uh-huh. I'll get back to that later, but I, as far as the look of it feeling old, I actually wonder if a lot of the the look of this one. And the the age and everything is because I think Roddenberry was making a very conscious effort to make it look like Forbidden Planet. Because I think the whole thing mm-hmm. when they wind up on Talos Four with the encampment and all that. I have that in my notes. Yeah. I really think that it, it's supposed to the feel like that. Let's save that for the second part. But yeah, I have that same note that looks like Krell technology. Exactly, yeah. Even the uniforms look a little bit like uh... – a little bit more towards the uniforms of for, for, yeah, Forbidden Planet. I always, I always want to say Fantastic Planet, but that's a cartoon. <laughs> but uh, we haven't heard much from uh, from Lenny yet. I want to, I want to know Lenny's thoughts on this one. Well, I, I, it's a great episode. I, I think that um, it really embodies uh, all a lot of the great things that you have about Star Trek. I mean, you have interesting science fiction premise, you have interesting character development, yeah. and, and I, yeah. I love the way they, they did the framing sequence, you know, together with the cage, because the whole thing, putting Spock in between his past captain and his current captain and the 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 question about duty versus personal relationships, yeah. it, it just has everything. I mean, Absolutely. you know, like... Like I like I like the the latest movie that came out. I thought it was okay, but um, this like blows it away, you know. And this is like forty years Amen, earlier. Brother. Yeah, it, it's just it's just stock. It's such a rich episode with so much to it, you know. And watching it again, I had, probably hadn't seen it in at least ten years, and uh, well, I just loved it. it it's just... also one that's written well. You know, it says written by Gene Roddenberry. Period. 
which right. whether yeah. that yeah. means it was completely written by Gene Roddenberry or not, you know, who knows? Because he just tended to like, but that, but it's got a lot of it. There are a lot. It's got a lot of themes in the cutscenes, and it's got a lot of in the you know in the the framework, and it's got a lot of the the cage really covered a lot of questions about free will, and it really yeah. does, and it had some. Uh, you know, it had and it had that Roddenberry distinct sexual undertone of of you know Adam and Eve and uh-huh. and uh, and as we'll get in t- in the next episode, you know when um, Pike actually had his little harem to pick from and and <laughs> uh, you know the Telosians are sort of describing why each woman might be an ideal mate, you know, and th- their feelings for you know on Pike and stuff like that. That was that was some pretty. Uh, you know, nowadays that's it's kind of tame, but for when it came out, that stuff was kind of that was kind of racy. Probably uh-huh. even even the uniforms were a little racy. They they were a little racier, I think, in the cage than they were in Star Trek. I think the ladies' skirts were a little. I don't little think hotter. there are any skirts on the ladies in the cage. I believe everybody wears pants. There's one scene. Maybe I just like pants better than skirts. I don't know. I just remember (laughs) thinking that the ladies were looking good. (laughs) When when Pike is walking to his quarters, yes, yes. And for excuse, if if I'm thinking of the cage and not the menagerie, somebody correct me. But no, it's a menagerie. It's in both. Yeah, he's walking to his quarters, and he passes a couple that looks like they're on their way to a like a '60s love in or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're arm in yeah. arm, and, and they're just sort of gripped onto each other. She's wearing a skirt, isn't she? Wearing a she is, skirt? she is. But right, in not... terms of uniforms, but she's right. That, that scene made me think about what you've said on a number of occasions about the motion picture representing the Enterprise as a city in space. Well, here right. we have you know what they could do on TV. A hint of that, right? And that this one off-duty couple going to do something fun. You know, there's life beyond. Right, right. They're not. So. They're not in military. Yeah, they're at ease. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, well, they'd be wearing like shorts and like look like they're going to the beach or something. Well, that, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's maybe they are. Much, maybe they're going down. It looks to like the... my mom and dad in some of their like photos, <laughs> yeah. pictures. It yeah, looks like. But I think, it, but that's you know, great. That's a great. That's just a great little touch that's exactly. added to it that says a lot. You know, if you're if you watch it and you're paying attention, and you do, you pick that stuff up. Simply, I mean, we all picked it up. We and all when you remember watched it at the it. time, I'm sure these people are wearing clothes you could go out and see on the street right. or on the beach. Right. It's like, oh, <laughs> these are people, just people like me. They're just, they just happen to be living 300, 200 years in the future working on a starship. But and, they're just – they're people like – Do you like think me. that was a conscious decision on, on Roddenberry's yeah. part oh, yeah. so that it didn't seem yes. so science fiction-y? Yes. I know. I'm, it must have been because I know in, in another That's instance – That's how he works. You know? People ask Roddenberry, well, why don't you ever explain how the – the ray guns on your show work and he says well you know if you go to a western movie uh you don't uh hear the cowboy stop to explain how his six six shooter works before right, he fires right and and if you he said also if you were to put gregory peck on screen wearing a mustache like they really wore back in the 1880s or whatever you wouldn't it'd be, it'd pull you out of the picture right so that's why he wanted the humans in his show and most of the characters were right in the series, you know, Spock being the major exception. He wanted his humans to be contemporary 20th century, 1960s Americans, you know. Right. He, well, Again, he always exceptions, said, but that was the basic his basic feel on that. He's always said that he never made Star Trek to be like he really would think the 23rd century would be. Right. It was right. sort of an idealized version fit into a, a framework that could be workable 
as a serious, you know, his main concern was coming up with a story that could be used for episode after, you know, that you could put episode after episode out and not, not get boring and that it would have something that drives it forward all the time, you know? So, so you always have something, you know, something that would draw a theme that would drive it forward. And then you could have all different kinds of episodes and never run out of ideas. So he was thinking of it in a neck and it was Gene Roddenberry. He was a consummate producer and, uh, and, but he was also very he also had ideas you know that he developed in being a cop or what you know in his reading and and stuff and you can definitely see all his ideas sort of at, at work and and the ones that he didn't get in the in the cage he threw into the 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 bookends on, in in the framework around the cage so yeah. it's just full of of it, of questions and and the way pike starts meticulously trying to figure out how the Telosians work and stuff is very, you know, it's, it was very well written. And, uh, and the, the, um, interplay between Kirk, Spock and Mendez is, is very, 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 I mean, Kirk is, there's, there's several, this is also one of those shows where that has those every once in a while in Star Trek, there'll be a weird shot. And this one has a lot of just silent shots of Kirk in contemplation, you know, as at, at the end of at the end of this first part, you know, when it when when the end of the episode goes and you realize it's going to be a two-parter, you just see Kirk standing alone in his own thoughts, thinking, yeah. torn between being a you know a, the captain of a ship and a Starfleet officer and Mister Spock and having to choose, you know, and he has to choose, you know, yeah, and. uh they they usually would that 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 was a different kind of shot and the way it was filmed too with the sort of um you know uh tracking camera was uh, instead of a as a slow zoom or a, just a steady shot was also very different it reminded me of the cloud minders that had a couple shots like that that weren't the usual sort of visual style of star trek that shot of Kirk that you're talking about is one of the reasons that this episode, and I'm going to say it reminds me of Star Trek Three, although Star Trek Three naturally, you know, took place almost 20 years later. But you know, I'm I'm much more familiar with Star Trek Three, and you know, accepting Star Trek the motion picture, Star Trek Three is my favorite Star Trek movie. And one of the reasons I love that movie so much, and why I like this episode so much, they're very similar in the aspect of. They break formula. You know, they're not about a mission. They're not about, you know, exploring new planets or beating up new aliens or anything like that. These are episodes that are totally about loyalty and friendship yeah, and character you know. development. And yeah, very much so. Completely and there's a character driven. There's a moment very much like the moment you're talking about with Kirk in this where you can see the decision being made on his face. There's a scene just like that in Star Trek three where Kirk is talking to his commanding officer and the guy is shooting down Kirk's idea of going back to the Genesis planet for Spock. And you can see the (laughs) wheels turning in Kirk's head where he's thinking, yeah, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh And that's why I love that movie because that it's a turnabout really, because in this episode, you know, it's Spock putting it on the line and even risking Kirk to save his former captain. Whereas in star Trek three, it's all about Kirk putting everything on the line to save his best friend Spock. And that's why both of those are like, they're almost like bookends in a, in a sort. 
That's and that's yeah. the thing I like the most about this episode is that it's not it's not got anything to do with their mission. It's got entirely to do with friendship. You know, it really yeah. fleshes out but, Spock as you know, I, kind of a human being. You know, as as someone who does actually. You know, he's not emotionless, which is the common misconception about Vulcans is that they don't have emotions. It's actually that he's a deeply emotional person. He just doesn't show them, you know. And he he also has loyalty. But here's another another thing just sort of off that, uh, not to really counter your argument there, but I don't think Spock puts much at risk at this one. It's only seemingly. I think Spock Mm -hmm. has it so schemed out, and he's also schemed it out, I think, from stuff he's probably learned from Kirk. <laughs> you know, he's probably taken a few pages out of Kirk's book and how to pull this thing off and he's got and and his knowledge of how and and his knowledge of how Kirk would react to all these situations. He's figured out how to set it up. And, you know, unfortunately it's it puts Kirk in the, the position of having to court martial Spock. But at the same time, I think Spock's got it sort of fi- – you know, it's not until the end that you sort of see. S- Spock's had it all figured out, and you know once it all goes through that Kirk and Starfleet are going to go, oh, okay. You know, he's sort of got his case sewn up. He just has to mm-hmm. wait for it to play out, and he knows how Kirk is going to feel about it. And, you know, we all know what happens with Mendez and – uh well, I don't know that you know. I I see where you're going with that, but I think you're giving Spock a little bit too much credit because, as we see in in, in this episode, he misjudged Kirk because you know he actually has to halt his plan and surrender himself. You know, yeah. when when he realizes that Kirk is not going to give up and that he's actually going to run the shuttlecraft beyond the safe return point. Really, maybe yeah. I'm so, putting too much thought into it, but I thought he, <laughs> I thought he had that figured out. I thought he figured it yeah. would come to that, and he wanted the court martial so he could present the case, and that would, mm-hmm. and while he was presenting the case, that would give him just enough time to get to Talos Four to resolve well, everything. I don't know, fellas. What do you What do you think? <laughs> you can say I'm crazy. I don't mind. I've heard no, it before. No, I don't know. I think I, well, <laughs> I number one I, even. <laughs> Number one, I think it's ambiguous. I think it's open uh-huh. to interpretation. And one reason yeah. I say that is, like you, Chris, I always sort of assumed Spock had this, you know, it was basically in his mind signed, sealed, and delivered. You know, it was the done deal, and it was just playing it out. But I recently read, and I wanted to bring this up tonight, uh, Margaret Wander Bonanno wrote a Star Trek novel called Burning Dreams, and it's all about Chris Pike. I mean, he's it's the, the untold story of Chris Pike, you know. and uh, But it ties back into Menagerie, and she reads the episode uh, pretty convincingly that there are certain junctures where Spock did not know what was going to happen and how it was going to go down in the end. And one of those instances, I think, is the point Scott brings up. And even just watching the episode when he's inquiring of the computer, you know, how's the shuttlecraft doing? How much fuel does it have left? It seems like he's really wrestling with it. You know, He's worried, yeah. He's worried. And because, like Kirk says at the beginning to uh, uh, Miss Piper, you know, a Vulcan's uh, loyalty is... Uh, I'm paraphrasing, can't be questioned whether the commander's current or past. But but here, you know, Spock's wrestling with us. Who, who am I more loyal to? You know, how can I save them both? How can I be loyal to them both? Well, fortunately, um, Kirk has a bunch of loyalty to Pike, too, you know, so... Right. so that, does so he? he well, you get the impression that he does? Well, I, he I seems to really be... I mean, he calls him Christopher. 
You know, yeah. he, he, he doesn't call him. He's not like Commander Pike. Kind I, of, I didn't know. ever get the impression that they were chums or anything. I thought it was more of Kirk knew who he was and he was a fellow captain and all. But whether they'd actually spent time together or served together or anything, I don't well, I The way he asked, the way he would be like, Christopher, is this true? You know, and and, uh, well, and, the, and the reaction that, that he got from Mendez when Mendez was like, you don't know what happened. And Kirk is like, what? What happened? You know? As if Kirk should know, as if Kirk well, exactly, and, him... and and quote, there's been subspace chatter about it for months. <laughs> yeah, I so like that. Kirk's had months to, to figure. You know, if he were, I think, Kirk's you know, too busy banging pretty self-absorbed. Uh, yeah, no, so. no, that comes later in the series, Scott. Don't go there. That, <laughs> although it's on. introduced in this 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 particular episode. What? Well. Um, that's yeah, for next month. Yeah. there's a little scene between you know when they get when they get to the star oh, yes, base. Yes, the Johansson thing. Okay, you know there's like two women there that you know he's nailed both of them. You know. <laughs> All right, you you guys have both that, that turns up a lot in Star Trek. Chris Piper and I've got to point out that this chick acts like she's been neural neutralized to me. <laughs> what is the deal with her? No. I mean, doesn't she seem a little spaced out? She may not be the greatest actress in the world. I don't know. Yes, yeah. I don't know if it was a plot point. Yeah. Um, what was that, Mike? I said she's a forgettable character, but I feel like yeah. I lost my thought on the whole. Because then, oh, whether whether Kirk, uh, I think his relationship with Pike is in this is probably collegial, and you know respects him as a like you said as a fellow captain and Starfleet officer. But uh, right, I don't get the. I mean. Maybe it's just how we nuance the word loyalty. I, you know, I don't think he'd go out of his way to stab Chris Pike in the back or something, as he does in the Mirror Universe, apparently. But, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, I never. You, you know, I always. It, it, oh, I always got the picture that they were that they were good friends. <laughs> I always uh, just the way he he addressed him and the way he sort of acted to him. But you know, that could be. They that may could have be been something friends. I picked up. When I was a kid, that carried, you know, just carried into my assumptions of it when I started watching it again. They may have been friends, or they may have been uh, peers, or something like that. But I'm thinking if if Pike served as Enterprise captain 13 years ago, it's almost funny to me that that Kirk would call him Chris. And not captain or sir right. or whatever, because I, I I've always had the impression that that Pike would be Kirk's senior by quite a bit. I mean, Kirk was you know the youngest captain and all right. that sort of thing, and I, I just didn't I never got the impression that Kirk had been a captain for very long by the time he became Enterprise captain. Well, how how old did Jeffrey Hunter look? Maybe about thirty. He so would have been. At this point, he would have. Well, he died in '69, and he was 42. No, 41. I think 41 or 42. So he would have been in his late 30s. Yeah. Yeah. And so is, I'm pretty sure Kirk's supposed to be in his early to mid 30s. Is that does that sound right to you guys? Yeah. 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 So I guess they are about. Maybe they maybe they were you know uh, like classmates or or you know contemporaries and in some other in some I, other. I just got. I I always got the impression that maybe they'd you know um, Kirk had served under them and maybe they'd had some adventures and bonded a bit or something. They see, you know, I don't. Well, it's, no, it's sort of the, the where I come from. The other end is a, a um, 
when Mendez says, do you know Chris? Have you met Chris Pike? I think Kirk says, I met him when I took command. And my, maybe he doesn't say explicitly oh. I met him once, but that's sure the impression I've always gotten is, oh, yeah, you know, I met him once when I took command. And uh, in that novel I mentioned, not that it's canon, but it's a nice moment. Uh, Pike at one point is reflecting on that change of command ceremony and how you know Kirk was like this young puppy just so eager to get into the captain's chair and, and pike remembers how he'd been sort of different when he assumed command of the enterprise he was you know as you can tell from the cage he's a lot more uh self-doubting and contemplative and introspective and you know not that kirk can't be those things but generally he isn't and the one time we see pike he, he really is <laughs> throughout so um so i guess that's where i got the impression they were you know collegial but not uh yeah, well, buddies and, well Kirk know. would have That's definitely reacted to his situation in the cage differently than uh, <laughs> than yeah. Pike did. Oh, yeah. Kirk would have figured all that stuff Pike out did, but it would be after, you know, he'd already impregnated all three women. And I was just going to say, he uh, would have figured out a way to have all three of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then, and then get out of it and then be just like, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. We thought we were going to be there forever. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, his episode would have ended more like, you know, with the type. Yeah, exactly. And some little comment to McCoy and Spock, you know, that Spock doesn't exactly get. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> that, that that total look of I'm just so cool. Yeah, but uh, let right. me see. I had a couple. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna. No, that's all right. Go ahead. No, I, you know, just the thing on uh, on uh, whether Pike knew Kirk. I I actually have the transcript up here, and Ooh, and he's oh, okay. asked, "Have you ever met Chris Pike?" And he says, "When he was promoted to fleet captain, about your age, big, handsome man, vital, active." So I guess that that's the first time we met him. I guess they yeah. met basically as colleagues. They were both captains at the same time, and that would explain why I referred to him as Chris. Right. Yeah, and, and he's also quick to point out that Spock served with him, which leads me to believe if they had ever served together, that he would have he would have mentioned it. He would have said something. Yeah, but the fact yeah. that he mentioned Spock did and he didn't, I, I yeah. thought that was. Important, but I yeah. also think that you know this could all this could very easily be one of those little those little uh, inconsistencies in Trek that you know because there were no such thing as reruns when this was airing, and you know they never imagined that people would be you know watching it on video and DVD forty years later. That you know because in, in that episode um, Mirror Mirror, where it does say that Kirk got the Enterprise by assassinating Pike, leads you to kind of think that. He was serving under Pike. Well, you know? necessarily in the non-mirror universe that was the case, right? Right. You know, it's kind of like whenever you have an alternate reality kind of episode, they usually bend over backwards to work in familiar names and uh, they give you That's an true. alternate view of it. So, you know, it would make sense that they would take the name that you knew previously, and and that's like a, a cool idea that, that yeah, Kirk would yeah. have assassinated him. Right. Yep. And that's how it works in those that. days too. Yeah. And, uh, well, Scott, you also mentioned that you thought Jeff- Jeffrey Hunter w- died. That's why, uh... Yeah, that was, yeah, that was one of my notes, is, uh, I was surprised to, uh, to learn, because I, I, I wanted to do a little bit more homework. I, I know a lot about, uh, one of the other major actors in this episode, but I'm going to talk about him after we do the second part. But Jeffrey Hunter, I didn't know a whole lot about him, other than the fact that 
he had played Jesus Christ in King of Kings, which I always got kind of a king uh, uh, kick out of. I actually thought he played Jesus in uh, oh Jesus Christ different... Superstar. No, it was a different. I can't remember now. It was a different uh, Ben Hur or something like that. I can't remember. I didn't think it was King of Kings, but anyway, that's the movie he played Jesus. But yes, all my life, up until I saw the information about him that I looked up, I had always thought that the reason he didn't play, uh, you know, that he didn't come back after the cage, after the first pilot, was that he died. I'd always heard that he'd like died in a car accident or something, and I was surprised to find out that what actually happened was that he passed on the role after that first pilot got turned down. And decided to, I guess he wanted to stick with his budding, uh, you know, film career. And he stuck with that. And in uh, the information I found says that in May of 69, he had a stroke. And then uh, while he was recovering from that, he had another one and fell down a flight of stairs and uh, fractured his skull. And then he died a short time later in, uh, in May of 69. So I was like, wow. So, I mean, he was actually alive... You know, right through all of Star Trek, pretty much, you know, all of the original series, pretty yeah. much, because the original series wrapped up sometime in uh, in '69, I believe. So he actually could have come back, or could have come in, or something like that. So I was actually surprised that that was something I just didn't know before. I have heard that his wife also pressured him not to take the role permanently. I don't know if oh. that's true or not, but I have heard that. Well, you know, he might have regretted it, but it's a double-edged sword because, you know, whoever was good, if 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 it would have taken off like it did with Shatner, he he yeah. would have been Kirk forever. Huh. He would have had a hard time playing. He would have had a hard time getting the part. Did he do Jesus? Did he play Jesus Christ before or after the sixty-one? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. so it was before. Trailer. But yeah, in the future, he would have a hard time getting roles like that because people always would be thinking of him as Pike. I mean, I'm I'm obviously prejudiced, but I don't think he ever did anything beyond Jesus, you know, that was as, you know, I don't think he's going to be remembered for anything other than those two roles, you know, Jesus and King of Kings. Well, and, if you're going to have a part that you're going to be <laughs> remembered for, yeah. right, it's going to be the pinnacle of your career, it might as well be Jesus. I don't think it worked out for, um, that way for, um. Oh, who was it who played him in the Passion of the Christ? Was it William Defoe or something like that? Uh, Passion of the no. uh, Clav- Jim Clavicchio. Last Temptation of Christ, you mean? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh yeah, that was Will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. What did I, what did I say? The last. You said Passion the Passion of the Christ. <laughs> the last Passion of the Christ. It's uh, the <laughs> hybrid of those two movies. Ah, uh, I look. He was um, in a movie called Man Trap. <laughs> Je- Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Hunter. Was he? Now, the, most of the movies I saw that yeah. he was listed in, I I was totally unfamiliar with, to be honest with know. you. So I mean, yeah. some of these other movies might have been big deals at the time. I just didn't recognize the names of any of them. It looks like a lot of cop movies and uh, westerns, which was mm-hmm. big around the time. And he's he looks the part for both of those those kinds of movies. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you know. Um, a starship captain is just sort of an extension of that anyway. So, he, yeah, he just had that leading man sort of look. 
to him. Very Shatner-esque. He had, he had like, a lot of the same physical characteristics in general as Shatner. So he, it was, you know, Roddenberry was definitely looking for a certain type, I think, for the yeah. captain of the Enterprise. And he's he's different, too, though. I mean, he he's a little more... Calm, he's a different adult, actor. Yeah, very more. Yeah, I think he's more adult. I think he's a little bit more analytical. He he's a he's a think before you act kind of guy. Oh well, yeah, Shatner this... is a fly by the seat of your pants, bare knuckle fist fight kind of. The whole guy. the whole episode of the cage is him just thinking. <laughs> That's true. And you know, and he's yeah. thinking so much he defeat he defeats the guys with the giant bulbous ass heads. <laughs> you know, that's some pretty good thinking. Yep. They're presented as being pretty omniscient compared to humans. So, yeah. so. well, my my last note on this one was, uh, you know, much like uh, the next pilot, you know, we we get a, a piece of technology that we really never see again, at least not in the series, with with the phaser rifle that Kirk Kirk uses. And I always liked it, but I always thought it looked really cheesy. Whereas in this one, we get the phaser cannon, which yeah. I don't think we ever see again. We do see phaser rifles much later in next. Well, the phaser gen- cannon's badass. You can rig it right <laughs> up to the ship's phaser, yeah. or the, the ship's engines. That's right. Rig the <laughs> Why did they never backwards? use that again? That could have come in handy in a lot of uh, future episodes. I think it was basically the same. It was too convenient. It's the basically the same idea as in Night of the Living Dead. If if anybody's seen not, the original Night of the Living Dead, uh-huh. you could scare off zombies by lighting a torch and waving it at them, and they didn't like fire. They would cower away from fire like Frankenstein. But in an, any other zombie movies after that, that's never pursued because it's too convenient. You know, it's just like have a lit torch all the time, set the zombies <laughs> on fire, and they'll go running around in a panic trying to, you know, put it put themselves out. So you know, it was they. they I think after that they realized well the phaser cannon would be just you know we, we might as well let's just forget about if they even made a conscious thought of that but yeah it would be I, i'm sorry you could yeah. mike, i think i totally walked over mike a second ago and i didn't mean to what, what were you gonna say mike i don't think so i'm thinking oh, okay. at this moment that if i were just uh, listening to the episode i'd be angrily pounding on the keyboard they didn't have phasers in the cage. It was a laser cannon. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. They, they had that's time warp, warp too. They, 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 they had time, time warp, warp factor. Drive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the time warp factor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I liked that. Great. I always liked that. The it gave you a little more insight into how it worked. Right. Actually. Yeah. Although it, that open, it, it opens up a whole can of worms. I imagine if any of us were physicists, we'd probably be going, rah, what time warp. <laughs> factor <laughs> don't they know they obviously didn't know but um <laughs> you know all science aside <laughs> even i mean i just i remember this episode being cheesier than it was and i and uh boy i was i was wrong even right down to pike's makeup was uh pretty graphic on his oh. face too it was that was a pretty nasty burn for I guess stuff like that was turning up in the Twilight Zone and and all those other horror anthology shows too. So I I shouldn't, you know, maybe sometimes maybe sometimes I overestimate the crassness of modern media <laughs> and you underestimate the crassness of past media and Sorry, or. I didn't... 
I didn't mean to butt in on you. Um, the guy who plays Pike in the wheelchair, uh, his name is Sean Kenny, I think. And you can see him as the navigator of the Enterprise in Arena. And uh -huh. he really does look like Jeff Hunter. It's really remarkable. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I didn't discover that on my own. I read it in a book years ago. But uh, no. the other person I think looks like Jeff Hunter is Chuck Woolery. I don't know if anybody else <laughs> could see if they were going to remake this episode, they would cast Chuck Woolery as Captain Pike, maybe. He know. can't be that busy. They should have got him for the new Star Trek movie. Well, he's got to be 70 by now, you know. He's like Shatner probably by now. I mean, yeah, he'd need a hairpiece and everything probably. Along those lines, I've also thought that the guy who played Frazier's dad could play Dr. Boyce. Yes. John Maloney? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can't you see that guy playing Dr. Boyce, you know? <laughs> I like that. He was good back I like cap. Dr. Boyce, too. Yeah, I do, too. Dr. Boyce. A man will yeah. tell his bartender things he'll never tell his doctor. And he whips <laughs> out the little case with all the booze in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. There's a history. Yeah, I mean, the Enterprise has a history of drinking doctors. Yeah. <laughs> and what's that line? Oh, when, uh, when Pike says we used to take a picnic lunch out – the way Boyce says, oh, that sounds exciting, right out with a picnic lunch every day. I mean, it's just, he's a great, he does, he's got such a small role in only the one episode, but he feels like yeah. a fully realized yes. person. I mean, it's, so many of them do. Number one, like you said earlier, Chris, mm -hmm. Dr. Boyce, Captain Pike, obviously, and the thing with, with Pike, I mean, there's just so many what-ifs you can play if, with this episode, and what if things had gone a different way? You know, the way you just described Pike as uh thinking before he acts and so he's like the the prototype of Picard in some yeah. ways uh, and it's just mm -hmm. it's not that Kirk or Pike one is better than the other it's just two different ways of captaining this vessel and undertaking this mission and it's so fascinating no and, one uh, is clearly better than the other Kirk kicks uh, ass <laughs> <laughs> Come on, come on. Captain Pike, though. you got to love Captain Pike. I, well, that's, oh, yeah, why, I, that's why I was really excited about the new movie is because yeah. I really was excited to see Pike in in full action again. I you like know? that aspect of it quite a lot. Oh, really you guys good. are just trying to wind me up. All right. We'll, no, we'll, 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 I really love what they did with Captain Pike. I did, too. I, I did, too. I did, too. Honestly, yeah, I did. I, I, as I said it before, and I would I would watch week-to-week an epi uh, Star Trek show with that cast – with Pike as the commander and everybody, you know, everybody else in a, in their lower positions and see the, you know, young, young Kirk being groomed by the, the gristled Pike. I think that would be a great show. Yeah. yeah. Uh, everything else and everybody else in that movie aside and the plot and everything else, uh, speaking strictly of Pike as a character and the actor that played him, I enjoyed that aspect of that movie. Yeah, he was, give that movie he that. was a good Pike. Yeah, and also my good friend Vargas Pike, Captain Pike, being a descendant of him, I'm sort of <laughs> a fan of his. He, I'm telling now, you, they're, 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 you know, the Christopher Pike is definitely a descendant of my friend Vargas Pike. They've got, they both got that. Vargas Pike even has a sort of late Trek movie William Shatner build. <laughs> I wish he listened to the show; he'd love that. <laughs> Luckily, he's in Oregon, so he couldn't kill me immediately. <laughs> Scott Scott will probably kill me first at Dragon Con. <laughs> hey, by by the way, I um you know when watching it this time, I had it on DVD. I I you know when they they're sort of briefing Kirk on uh, the history of you know the prior mission, they pull out this like leather bound book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. 
So I, I kind of slowed it down and, you know, on the DVD player. And if you look at it, it it's talking, it's like this official, official description in yes. like fancy words. And then they describe Spock. It says the half Vulcan <laughs> science officer. Yes. <laughs> like, they, they had a quote, they had a, Point that out in the official version. <laughs> exactly. Says the same thing. He reads it right from the fort with a half Vulcan sign. And, and the navigator is half, half white and half black. You know? <laughs> yeah. I write out all the kinks. At least they weren't calling them Vulcanians. Till <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up for the first part of uh, this episode. We're going to take a uh, Lenny and Mike, and we're going to force them at phaser point into the con suspended animation, the, you know, the Botany Bay <laughs> suspended animation chambers for a month so that, so that their minds are still on, you know, the, the menagerie when we come back next month. Meanwhile, Scott and I will go about our lives and uh, also go get – we're going to get uh, plastic surgery so that we – you know, that I look like Lenny and Scott looks like Mike and we're going to, you know, infiltrate their family. And uh, ruin all their years of hard work and et cetera, et cetera, in the course of a month. Where are you going? We're, we're going away. But just to tell you, after we're done with the menagerie, we'll be coming back on the, the, with our big Star Trek The Motion Picture episode. So there'll be, we'll Ooh. tell you more about that next month before it happens. But just have in mind that that's coming up. And we'll see you next month. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. You can email us directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. The Two True Freaks now have a phone line where you can call and leave a completely inappropriate message. Maybe we'll even use it on the show. That number is 1-585-COP-LURE. That's 1-585-267-5873. If you enjoyed this show, why not review us in iTunes? And if you didn't enjoy this show, why not review us in iTunes? Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.